When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And welcome to Big Gay Energy. I'm Bree. I'm Theora. And I'm Caitlin. Come along with us while we dive into the fun and nuances of queer media. Representation matters, and we're here to talk about it. All right. Welcome back, friends. The BGE team has two very special guests today. Please welcome Sandy O'Sullivan and Hannah Reardon-Smith. Sandy is a professor of Indigenous Studies at Macquarie University, and Hannah is a postdoctoral research associate. Uh, thanks for hanging out with us today. Thanks for having us. All right. So, Sandy, first questions for you. So, what was your scholastic journey to become a professor of Indigenous Studies? Um, well, I left school when I was 13. Um, which was in the 1970s, uh, and I um, went back into education, having been a musician for a long time, uh, and in the 80s, and then I became an academic 31 years ago. So, um, so I started working in that way as an Aboriginal person. Um, there weren't a lot of Indigenous people at the time who were in the academy. It was pretty usual for us to be leaving school very young and so there weren't there just weren't a lot of people who uh, were there to kind of model what it was to be doing the work that we now do in the Indigenous Studies area but I came out of doing creative practice work and I came out of doing work across uh, critical race areas and found my way towards uh, both gender studies and Indigenous studies and at our particular um, area at Macquarie we actually do both. So we have a very uh, centred approach to say that queer indigeneity is at the centre of complexity of who we are as Indigenous people. And so that's, I, I guess that's the very, very rough rundown of it, but obviously 31 years is a really long time, so I won't bore, bore you with all of the stuff that I did in the interim, but I think, I think it's not an uncommon journey um, to have been across a lot of disciplines. Indigenous studies is every discipline. Of course it is, because we're, we're across every area. So, um, you know, it makes sense. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, Hannah, yeah. similar question. What led you to pursue a PhD in music and now postgraduate research? Um. Uh, I'll preface just by saying that I'm not Indigenous. I'm a um, white settler scholar. By Caitlin. Um, by Caitlin. <laughs> We've lost Caitlin. Um, but, uh, and I'm, yeah, uh, living and working on Yagara and Turrbal country um, in uh, what the settler colonial nation state knows as Queensland in, in Mianjin, Brisbane. 
Um, and uh, which is not where Macquarie is, I should say. Um, Macquarie is on Darug country, which is further south uh, in, near Sydney. Um, and I, um, yeah, I'm, I'm a musician. Like I've been a musician primarily throughout my like adult life and done a lot of music study and playing um, and I play the flute and I do things with electronics, I compose, I improvise. Um, and my like doctoral research was kind of pursuing, I mean, in a way, I think for a lot of artistic researchers, um, there's a kind of like point that you're really trying to articulate your own practice and your own identity within your artistic practice. And so I think a lot of my PhD was, was like, really carving out that space and kind of moving away from the training that I'd had in um, within like academic institutions, particularly from a European art music um, background. And um, I've also, you know, alongside my music studies, I was always involved as a community organizer and activist, uh, anti-colonial solidarity activist and, um, uh, and a queer activist. Uh, and I was, you know, I was also late coming, like being able to really step into my queer identity in many ways. Um, like it was always there and underwrote everything that I did. But um, uh, I grew up in, you know, a more conservative town and and um, it was always a bit of a bit too much of a people pleaser and, and let that rule my identity for far too long. Um, and there was this kind of like parallel between stepping into my queer identity and stepping into uh, like the artistic practice that I feel is most myself now. And so a lot of that was involved in, in pursuing that PhD. Um, and so my, my doctoral study was kind of like a, a queer feminist thinking of freely improvised music. And, and to do that, I really wanted to think with what it meant to claim freedom in music uh, on like stolen land in settler colonial, um, in a settler colonial context as a white musician um, and that, yeah, it, it led me into reading much deeper into a lot of things um, and to also engage with a lot of queer Indigenous thinkers, uh, including Prof O'Sullivan um, and, and also many others, particularly Alison Whitaker um, and um, also uh, Yorta Yorta Song woman, um, Deb, and several others that really like, um, yeah, shaped shaped my thinking and where I went from there. And I got to meet Prof Sullivan uh, at a conference and and really got to know a bit of their work. And um, the more that I read of their writing and and of what they're doing, the more that I really um, felt felt into how how much I I wanted to kind of like go down this track of of looking deeper into the artistic work of queer Indigenous people um, and got to know the department that uh, Prof is part of and now I'm part of. Um, and just so many incredible people really thinking from this like central point of queer Indigenous people. Um, and so, yeah, so I then stepped from, <laughs> from doing a lot of artistic thinking and artistic research into, uh, into an Indigenous studies department and to really thinking with uh, yeah, queer indigeneity and and learning so much from from that. So that's that's how I got where I am. Yeah. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, in fact, in fact, uh, we we met at a um, at a music and gender conference um, that I was doing a keynote for, I think, um, yeah. a few years ago, and so it made sense. Uh, then when I saw that you'd applied for the job, I thought, well, we'd had that conversation, so yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, it's kind of how it's often how it works. I, you know, we've just we've got a new PhD who's working with us, Leandro Wallace, who's one of the people from the Engender podcast, who's just mm-hmm. come over from Argentina. So just joined us from Argentina. It was the same thing. Wow. Was, we'd engaged with them kind of then they'd applied and it was, well, we know the wonderful work that Leandro's already doing. So Right. Um, That's awesome. That you find you find community that way like community always provides I feel like community know. always provides and I think anti-colonial work mm-hmm. is always about relationships it's always about finding one another um, and it's important work for us to be doing uh, and Absolutely. obviously you know working with settlers like Hannah is incredibly important for Indigenous people because we're strengthened by working with with people who are genuinely uh, here and wanting to challenge um, that coloniality. And it's no mean feat to find people who are genuine around that. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, Sandy, you're currently an Australian Research Council Future Fellow. Yeah. Can you tell us a little more about the fellowship program and your current project? Yeah, it's one of those um, senior fellowships that, you know, it means that I got a million dollars off the government to um, to, to fund some, uh, some work for four years that looked at, uh, at the capacity for, uh, for queer Indigenous people to affect change across the community. So the project's called Saving Lives, mapping the, um, the influence of, of queer Indigenous artists. But it's really looking at people who are making um, and out of that, there's, it, it's funny, these programs are all about the individual. So they're about the fellow, basically, but there's a team of people that I work with, including Hannah. So Hannah's the postdoc on the team. And then we have um, some other students, including Leandro, who's, who's doing uh, their PhD, but also um, a couple of people who are working on the Queer As um, audit, uh, which was actually how we came to know this podcast. Um, really? And, my complete addiction to it so I think I've seen almost <laughs> everything and of course what's powerful about it I'll I'll come back to that but um but just to just to finish it in terms of the the um the program look it there is incredible power in representation um and the way that people are making uh and being able to make across a range of artistic fields and the way that they're doing it in spite of the colony is incredible you know we know that what happens for a lot of queer indigenous kids is that they can feel isolated um and all queer kids can but for indigenous kids there's the kind of extra layer of um of coloniality that's brought religion and a whole lot of um misunderstandings not necessarily from within the community but from outside of it that tend to make us smaller you know tend to make us um not so so prominent in that way. So there's a number of work, of bits of work that we do as a part of this. And the, the Queer As Audit is looking at queer representation. But um, 
it's really looking at it in the context of 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 serial screen work for a very particular reason that I'll I'll pop back to. But the other work that we're doing is to to work on this um, on this project called Storied, which is a curated. It's framed as a curated creative imaginings from queer Indigenous artists, but it's actually them talking about their connection to representation and their connection to meaning making in their work, uh, and all sorts of artists, from visual artists through to musicians. Uh, obviously, Hannah and I both have a background in music, and so, but also in making other forms of art and in doing anti-colonial work, you're often drawing on multiples. And in the same way as Indigenous studies is across a range of disciplines, a lot of queer Indigenous artists work across more than one discipline. Um, and this is true for queer artists in general, but it's specifically true for, for queer Indigenous artists because it's true for Indigenous artists. And it's for a range of reasons, but it's mostly that siloing, you know, that kind of having to put things into boxes is the colonial project is to say if you're an actor you're just an actor you don't get to be a musician as well or maybe you do but then it's going to be a list of things that you do but it's going to be these silos and so we're seeing people breaking that down a bit but yeah it was uh there's there's this other work too that's looking at um at challenging the notion of session so this idea of a session this idea of a of of um an agreement that was never there to, to suggest that Indigenous people would be um, forced into containers, into colonial containers, including gender. So I do a lot of work on the colonial project of gender for that reason and also because I'm trans, you know, so it's, so it's part of the journey for me, I suppose, as an individual, but it's part of many people's journeys. And, you know, and, and creative expression is a great way for, to be able to, to talk to other people, people from, for instance, my generation, I'm in my late 50s, you know, people who are, um, who are younger, who are, who are wanting to communicate with their family. We're working on a major project with um, Parents of Gender Diverse Children, which is a national organisation uh, that looks at how to provide support. And we're doing um, a project that develops up resources. But going back to the, um, to the queer as, um, which we only worked out recently, sounds a bit like queer ass, um, we don't say <laughs> it that way. We say us. So of the course, best, the best kind of ass. Like, yeah. <laughs> the only girl. kind we love. Yeah, I mean, totally queer ass um, and queer ass. So it's it's really looking at the complexity of um, of queer representation. So it's looking at at queer representation, but it's saying how complex can um, can queerness be in this kind of serialised form, sort of conservative form of TV, um, you know, where there's actually a large group of people who are not necessarily queer working on something where we expect to see queer characters represented. And so it's trying to understand that and it's doing a lot of different work in that. And so we've been working with um, a bunch of people, but particularly with um, Alana Blakers and, and Taya Miller are two of our um, our students who are who are uh doing an internship with us at the moment to help us build this audit where we're just basically auditing, but not like a queer version of the internet movie database. It's a bit more than that. It's, it's trying to understand where there are, um, where there are relationships to, to power in particular ways, but also to representation. So, you know, obvious stuff like, um, like, um, 
looking at queer baiting or queer coding or any any of that you know in a in something like the internet movie database you could have something that has a list of queer characters but it's not going to center on that idea of queerness and again we do a whole centering um, on indigenous queerness within that space but then we we move out from there and say what other complexities are there you know what other ways can people be represented in that complexity because often oftentimes we know and and you've said so many times across this podcast that that there'll be a selection of one thing um you know so people will pick queerness or they'll pick um indigeneity or they'll they'll pick um race as a a, they'll pick disability they'll pick something but they won't understand that actually there's a lot of people who are uh, who you know the complexity of lived experience is that you're often lots of those things and you know and that is not often what's being represented in this kind of front-facing um, serial TV programs. So, um, so we're we're looking at TV. We're also looking at the serialization of some films. So we've got a bit of a focus on Marvel um, and looking cool. at the, the queer and lack of queer characters, and also the kind yes. of way that <laughs> the queerness in Marvel, in particular. Um, becomes a kind of dumping space for, yes, we've got a queer character there and, you know, and I, I guess in light of that um, it'll be interesting to see how Echo works because it'll have queer Indigenous characters in it. But will that become the, no, we did it, it was over there, mm. remember, so we don't have to do yeah. it again. So, you know, and, and we came to, sorry, not we, I came to um, to, to listening um, to, to this podcast because I mean it was just remarkable you know to hear people talking for hours about um I mean it is it's it's remarkable to have that sort of time I mean it matters that it matters that you're all you know very eloquent and 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 great at analysis of course but that's you know in its own way that's um I'm not sure that you'd get those hours out of it otherwise but it's it's remarkable to have that sort of um time with um with the content you know um and that's what we're doing i guess as well with the queer as archive is trying to spend time with some of the content and trying to to think about those moments that come out of it that are more than just seeing this in a kind of serial way or seeing one show and another show and another show and hoping for for queer representation sorry there's Mm. a million things to say (laughs) and maybe thinking about answer and and thank you and maybe we're, we're thinking about um, like, yeah, what not just like, um, you know, what that representation is and like a, a dot point of the different layers of complexity of, of an individual's identity, but uh, also thinking in detail about the work that that's doing, like, you know, what that what work that's doing for an audience, what work that's doing for people that have uh, maybe that particular kind of um wheelhouse of, of identity complexity but um you know but also um yeah like how that's kind of inserted into the story how that that characterization or or in the case of like queer baiting and things like you know what role that's playing and then you know looking a little bit also at and this is this is another point that this podcast comes in like um the kind of fan feedback or or the the way that um viewers can kind of take stories in their own directions and and like articulate what it is that they wish they were seeing that they're not seeing um and and kind of looking at how like how that kind of interactive um rather than it just being like this is what's blasted out into the world it's like it's looking at how that has a 
actually has a kind of interactive element that um, you know the the kind of like little Easter eggs or the little the little um, hat tipping that uh, writers and producers do to uh, an audience that has complex analysis that has complex engagement with queer characters on screen. So yeah, that's that's another way that it's kind of going that step Including. further than just like listing. Yeah. Including when it's shitty, you know, yeah. and yeah, oh, yeah. Absolutely. I think prob- probably especially when it is, you know, um, obviously the, you know, the idea isn't just to um, to, to bash um, these sites that are trying to do something, but it's also how much work is involved to, for instance, Queerbait. Um, <laughs> it's a lot of work. Um, but there's also a really interesting thing that happens often for in- Indigenous characters that are in um, otherwise mainstream or what we might call white stream shows uh, and that's that there is this um, they're, they're often already having to do some work and so that idea of getting them to do a little more work but there's also that problem of you know how do you know a character is queer um, if they don't have a relationship or talk about it so, you know, and uh, we just had Ace Week, which has been really interesting in terms of looking for, you know, queer, for Ace characters in particular. And, of course, where they're present is in a lot of animated um, series, you know, for a range of reasons. But some of those reasons are, you know, they're often not analysed. So, so the idea of asexuality as this kind of absence is often how it gets framed in um, you know, in, for instance, a series. And the problem with series and the reason that we're interested in series rather than just one off screen rep is that you have time with the characters. You have time for them to develop um, and you have time to see the potential. And, of course, one of the things that happens in writers' rooms is that they decide for characters to have relationships. Um, and so characters that might otherwise, for instance, be Ace, Art or Arrow or, you know, or any other representation that, you know, isn't necessarily that well understood. And it's not like there's none. And in fact, there are some, and that's part of what we're also, um, you know, flagging is that this isn't, uh, this is also about locating people. So it's not just about problematizing how people are um, being included or characters are being written. But actually, uh, sorry, if I can just add, I I come back to, you know, there's an amazing interview that you did with Olivia Lucas. Uh, and in that, there's a, there's a couple of incredibly important moments um, for us in this work. You know, one's the, um, the the representation, as she frames it, of Afro-Indigenous people and that the only reason that, that the, you know, the character was written that way was because there was someone in the writer's room who wanted it. Um, that's incredibly powerful and we know it. You know, I did this work for um, Donkey's Years that was about uh, looking at representation in museums and galleries and and looking at at how Indigenous people are represented in those spaces. And it's no surprise that it happened where there were Indigenous curators most effectively and in a more complex way. Um, you know, you're going to get that, that complexity because why not? Um, but, you know, the answer is often because we want to make it as open as possible. Uh, but open as possible usually defaults to white. So it's, so it's about understanding some of those challenges and, and it often defaults to, you know, cishet as well. Um, so. 
That's awesome. That was such an amazing interview for us. And we ended up talking with her for hours after we stopped recording. So she's just, she was just one of the, one of the, I think it was probably no offense to anyone else, my favorite interview. So totally loved it. Learned a lot during it. We learned a lot. And that's why it was my favorite interview. There's a there's a line in there where 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 she says and I'll just read it off the page, um, talking about Thelma being queer, um, where she says also for Indigenous people it's so normal, and and hearing that not only is it a great line <laughs> that will be used again and again by us, but um, but it's so powerful and it's so true because the rhetoric is often here for. Uh, decades here it was oh indigenous people don't like you know queerness and they don't do queer I mean this was what was said about us um but you know meantime we're just there being queer people uh and actually it's just not true like even with the power of the church you know there is a negotiation that is not necessarily really understood um more broadly and it's part of what happens in you know, the in the colony, you know, in the resistant colony is that you still support your own um, in that resistance. And so it it isn't that big a deal. <laughs> so, yeah. That's amazing. Yes, thank you. It seems like that now is a great time for this project and we're excited to see what comes out of this because it's a fascinating thing to really dive into. So thanks for sharing that. Uh, Hannah, question for you. So you are a producer and presenter for Radio Reversal. Can you tell us a little bit about what Radio Reversal is and how you got involved with it? Yeah. Um, so uh, Radio Reversal is a show on a community radio station here in Mianjin called 4 Z. Um, and it's community run. It's... Um, yeah, just it's it's kind of got a like punk DIY kind of aesthetic and uh, has a very strong focus on uh, profiling local musicians, local artists. Um, and Radio Reversal is a show that's been running now uh, for a bit over 10 years, which is wild. I haven't been involved for that long, um, but it's, um, yeah, we just had kind of our, our 10 year anniversary, uh, which is yeah, it was it was a really special episode, um, but uh, it's a, a co-produced thing. It's really a community project. Um, so there's about six of us that are, are really regular presenter producers. Some of us are a little bit more um, regular than others. Um, there's sort of three main people that, and then there's like some very regular guests. But then we, uh, it's a, essentially uh, like based in kind of critical theory, community organizing and anti-colonial like solidarity efforts. Um, uh, yeah, run by a group of queer people uh, and largely queer women that are, yeah, really thinking with as many, uh, you know, thinking with the kind of like work that we're also doing through a community organizing outfit called the Brisbane Free University. Um, which has uh, definitely started as kind of like a public lecture series at the moment. The, the most common thing we do is, is a reading group. Um, so it's the BFU Radical Reading Group. So um, there's so my involvement, I guess, in Radio Reversal came through the reading group and through the public lectures and 
and going along to these things. And having been, I mean, uh, Prof talks about like these siloed sort of things, particularly in the art world, uh, studying music, particularly studying at a conservatorium like I did, um, which in the case of the one where I studied, the Queensland Conservatorium is like literally its own building away from the rest of the campus of the university that it's associated with. So extremely siloed, extremely kind of like enclosed space. Um, and you're like studying this one kind of art making in this particular way. Um, and you don't have a lot of contact with other thinkings or other other kinds of um yeah, ways of engaging with the with the world and ways of engaging with knowledge and like who gets to have knowledge and and the kind of politics of knowledge. So um, I think I was always like just a bit outspoken and resisting that in in many ways. Um, and I sort of tried to do some like cross institutional stuff that didn't didn't really pan out the way I was hoping. And um, so through more activist circles, found my way into BFU, Brisbane Free Uni. Um, and became extremely good friends with a lot of people and, and started at, at like organizing and doing things with them. So it's, it's kind of the idea is to like remove this like enclosure of like knowledge or thinking from this institutionalized space um, and to make it really open. So the reading group's really open. There's absolutely no prerequisite to like have a certain level of like understanding of critical theory or things like this. The idea is that anyone can engage with these texts um, and even if you haven't read the text or, or often we have a podcast or, or a, um, a screening or something like that, with, like there's still openness to be involved in the discussion and to talk about like the understanding that you drew from it and, and like or the understanding that you're drawing from the conversation that's happening. So it's a, it's a really open space um, and we make sure that all of our texts are as accessible as we can make them with the limited resources. So it's always presented as a written text and, and with an audio recording. Um, and um, yeah, so so then the radio reversal is, I guess, a little like public injection on the on the airwaves. And so it's a good opportunity to be talking with people, like interviewing people and, and having conversations like this. We only, we have an hour a week and we also play some music and things. So it's, it's often, um, you know, quick, quick conversations. <laughs> Everything's edited down a little bit, but um, we're hoping to also branch out into some more frequent. We've done a few kind of like podcast releases, but we're hoping to kind of um, make some of our, some we, we sort of have these series sometimes where we are like really thinking with a particular topic. So um, recently there's been a lot of thinking. Um, one of the, one of my co-producers presenters, um, Marissa, she's a, a new mum for the second time. So she's been thinking a lot with measurement and um, like essentially the colonial project of measurement and how how this is used to like um, like as a, as a system of control. And when you're like a new parent, the, the constant weighing of your child and, and all of these like um, milestones that, that you're going through as, yeah, like supposed to meet this by this point and this by this point and, and the anxiety that that produces for an individual. And um, so there's been, there's been some thinking with that. Um, and then, um, yeah, so, so that's, that's radio reversal. So, uh, but just recently I had a good conversation with an amazing um, Kwandamuka Aboriginal um, and African-American artist Sachem um, on a show that we did on Friday, which was a really brilliant um, performance, but also just to talk about 
you know, the developing, he's this like really young and really great artist. He's, I only really realized he's like 22 and I was like, oh, well, okay. Yep. Cool. Yeah. I've done things. <laughs> I'm 35. Um, but yeah. Just... <laughs> You're all really young. <laughs> Um, but yeah, Good just, age. just hearing his thinking, um, thinking with community and in community and how that comes through in his music and his poetry. Uh, it was such a, it was such a beautiful conversation. And then to, yeah, like the performance was also really beautiful. So, you know, it's a wide variety. So I do a little bit of talking with people, um, as a kind of like radical music as of me and, um, thing, cause I'm the, I'm the resident musician for the show. So yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's a, a bit of a haphazard summary of radio reversal in the community around it. And it's a it's you know it's a community radio station that's really successful um, in what is a, a pretty big city. I think there's three million people in Brisbane, hmm. so hmm. it's you know so it's it's got some size, and you know there is a, a real sense of it as a as a community site. So. So cool. Um, we talked a little bit that you know you knew of us, and that's how we got to know you. Mm. Uh, but we're curious about what drew you to Motherland, Fort Salem, and our podcast family. Oh, um, actually, I, I think it might be a slight secret. I know somebody who works on it, so so that was what drew me to watching it. Um, and then, uh, look, um, one of the things that I've been trying to do is to um, is to look at, um, but uh, um, I, I think I think Motherland in particular, it's a kind of pretty, uh, it's great, but it's also a very straightforward show in a lot of ways. You know, it's, uh, I mean, I think you've posited that it's surprising that the, there isn't a greater audience for it. And in fact, I feel the same way because it seems like the sort of highly accessible show that would have, um, you know, a much bigger fan base than it seemed to accrue. And obviously there are lots of reasons for that. But what attracted me to, uh, um, to, to finding you was actually I'd been looking at reactors I'd been looking, I'd worked with a reactor who'd been able to go to, to Clexicon in 2019 for the beginning of this Queer As work and they'd, they'd gone there, Emily Papak had gone there and done a really great review for us, um, which was the starting point to me starting to work on this. Um, and at the time there was the big discussion, um, Stoush, around trans people and inclusion in um, Clexicon and so I, I, I got first-hand kind of knowledge of that. I just couldn't get over there that year and in fact we had um, a couple of our colleagues go to this year's Clexicon and have reported back as well um, and at the time there, and even now there are almost no Indigenous queer, um, no Indigenous queer representation. There was, there was one panel um, that was uh, content creators, you know, it was on YouTube, you know, it was not necessarily the kind of representation that we're looking at, which is largely this kind of, you know, fictional character representation. Um, but also it's not surprising um, that there aren't, you know, actually one of the places where a lot of queer Indigenous representation is happening is on this continent. Um, so we've got a lot. I mean, you can see it in Heartbreak High, for instance, but you can see it more broadly across 
um, everything from Clever Man through to a, a lot of things that you probably don't have access to that are from so-called Australia. And what's been interesting then in looking at spaces like um, the, you know, reactors is to see what sparks their interest. And that's why I've been looking at them is, you know, to, to understand what your average person is looking at and what they're seeing. And the whole, you know, framing of, of reactors is that they're your average person. You know, the whole framing of it is that they just, your, well, you're not your average person. You know, you're people who have a great level of complexity. No, you know, no disrespect to reactors, but they don't necessarily have the kind of in-depth knowledge that, that you represent. So I started listening uh, actually because what some of them are like three hours I tried to get them to shorten it when I first started and then oh, I realized no no that's just them we're gonna keep yeah, going with we can it. <laughs> you should you should see our outlines uh look uh, it's it's brilliant I feel like I have seen your outlines <laughs> I've seen them played out so, and and what's brilliant about it is not just again the cleverness and the time with it but also it's covering a lot of ground that we'd identified was really needed when we were looking at queer as you know it's not just about oh is that a bit of queer baiting it's actually understanding what's happening with characters and what happens with audiences what they expect and you know what's possible and of course what you've done is suggested things that are possible um, and suggested things that are um, available uh, as, you know, as a set of ideas that is like a layer on top of the actual work. So it makes it better. Um, so I think at one stage it would have been any show, um, but I can't believe I'm saying this, but I think I watched three mostly so that I could keep up with where you were at with it. So I became... <laughs> In that, and and I think again, it's I, I can't believe everybody isn't listening to you who's interested in this. And people may not find the time to be able to do that, but it is powerful and powerful too in terms of interviews. You know, again, I mean the you know the Lucas interview was really interesting. There was stuff drawn out of there that we wouldn't have been able to find otherwise. Um, mm, and yeah. I know because then after that we went to try and find everything that was available and it wasn't there in these other forms. So so giving time over but also having that kind of allowing for that complex discussion, it was incredibly important, yeah. Thank you. That was why we started. That was like the goal. Uh, pretty much everything you said is... Because Theora had listened to podcasts before that were that length and she really enjoyed the in-depth analysis and, and everything. And so we wanted to bring that, but also some of our weird humor. So <laughs> well, the humor is incredibly important too, because if you don't have that, I mean, what the fuck are you doing? You know, it's, it's, yeah. it has to be, an essential part of it because there's also humour in what's not being realised in, you know, what you aren't seeing, the behind the scenes of a character, I mean. Um, and, you know, that there's there's got to be humour in all of that and I think especially in a show that isn't focused on humour. I don't mean there's no yeah. humour in it but, you know, I think it works Absolutely. more in that instance. I mean, we're very real about the fact that Motherland would be very depressing if you just looked at it from... Straight on. 
So you're you're incredibly right. Um, well, I think um, there's you've got one um, one episode that uh, look. I'm not going to be able to remember which one it was, but I think it's like two four season two episode uh, four that's really depressing, and you kind of set it out with it's depressing, and it's really interesting because I listened to it and hadn't rewatched it since I'd seen it the year before or whatever and went back and watched it and I thought oh my god it really is depressing <laughs> and it was it was interesting to kind of hear how you played that out though um and I think really powerful yeah. well thank you thank you in in my culture in Wiradjuri culture we have this expression in the marijuana and it's to live well in a world um, that uh, that you've made good. So you make a world that's good and then you live well in it, but you have to make the world that's good. And I think, again, sometimes when you hear reactors, it's great, but it's like a response and you don't really know anything about their contexts. And this whole notion of kind of making a world in which Motherland or any other series enriches your life is incredibly powerful in these podcasts. And, and I think we all have to do that work. Thank you. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I love that. That's yeah, the first time yeah. I heard this podcast, I was like, oh, wow, they're really smart. <laughs> <laughs> and I just come in and I bring in chaos. <laughs> no, chaos you bring good. a lot more than chaos. I'm sure you do, but chaos isn't a bad thing either. No, it's not. No, and chaos I think is that, definitely. I think, I think that part we, of, yeah, unpacking the complexity of things. Yeah, <laughs> it's the anti-colonial totally. work. We, the anti-colonial work we do is chaos. So yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> I think you have to. You have to throw that. You have to have that component for things to get shaken up. Otherwise, it's just going to remain the same. Mm. So change doesn't come without chaos. Yeah, I'd um, agree. <laughs> <laughs> so we have a question for both of you, and that is, how does media representation, or lack thereof, impact intersectional communities such as queer Indigenous groups? Um, it's a big question. Yeah, it is a, it is a big <laughs> question. And, you know, the project's called Saving Lives. Our overarching project is called Saving Lives, and... It's called that for a reason. Um, you know, I was really pleased that the government put a million dollars into this. Our uni put another million into it, um, which I think is like um, 1.5 million or something in US, so US dollars. So it's a lot of money, but it's also what it is, is it's an investment in the trust that we might be able to um, do some work that changes people's outcomes, um, makes them feel seen and also so that they can see how they can be in the world. Um, And I think that issue of representation is even more crucial for um, some groups. And it's not just queer Indigenous people because that's like that's a monolith too. You know, there's older people, there's younger people, there's all, you know, variety of people, as many as there are people. And that idea of, you know, of challenging symbolic annihilation is incredibly important when we've been subject to actual annihilation. You know, the the colony has been about trying to demolish us. You know, I was born 
a year before we gained rights as Indigenous people. Uh, you know, there's a very solid argument that, you know, that we weren't considered people at all before then. In fact, we weren't. We weren't subjects. Um, and we were, at least in some ways, um, part of the Flora and Fauna Act. So um, the, the fauna part of it. Um, but, you know, we, we were, you know, not considered to have rights. You know, my, my mother was born in uh, another country and came over to this country and had rights as an immigrant that her children didn't have. And, you know, and this is a really, you know, this is in just my lifetime. I, I'm in the late 50s, but still only in my lifetime that that happened. And we're still dealing with the after effects of that that involves people not really um, asking, requiring or getting um representation and so it's often just one or two really good actors in the space people who are doing the work that change that and we've had that here in um in tv and film you know we've had a lot of indigenous people who've been making but we've had a few people like sally riley who who put together clever man who pitched a lot of indigenous representation a Wiradjuri person so from the same community as me we've got over 300 uh, different communities in Australia. And, you know, so so we have um, this this person who's responsible for probably 20 to 30% of queer Indigenous representation and, uh, and particularly um, probably much more than that in terms of Indigenous representation, you know, and why does it happen? Well, it happens when people are queer and Indigenous, you know. It happens when you've got people who are there in the decision-making and that's been... Uh, only in the last 20, 25 years. And so we're starting to see it more, but it, it takes that, it takes that participation. It takes someone not just wanting to ha- show representation, but knowing what it means and knowing how it affects people's lives. And so we called it Saving Lives for a, a couple of reasons. Um, sorry, I think that was the royal we. I, I, I called it um, uh, Saving Lives for a couple of reasons. One was um, because uh, we have the highest... Um, suicide rates in the world, um, queer Indigenous people. Um, so it's that. And, and a lot of that is about knowing um, who we are in the world and knowing that um, that we will be accepted in the broader community um, and sometimes within our own community um, because of these other, you know, issues. But, look, the other reason is uh, the idea of remembering the groundbreaking work that people are doing um, is incredibly important. You know, I, I remember a few years ago thinking, oh, you know, the, I grew up in the 70s. There wasn't that much queer representation on TV in the 70s. Um, it's not true. There was actually a lot. And people like um, Matt Bauer, who does this remarkable work on looking at representation, you know, I would look at, I would think about something like Mary Tyler Moore Show and I think, well, there's no queer characters on there. There were. <laughs> I just didn't remember them and see them and that's how symbolic annihilation works you know you you don't look for things you remember things as absent you you know you kind of erase yourself from these scenarios and um i've never seen you know up until i think eight or nine years ago was the first time i saw aboriginal people kissing on screen yeah whenever brand new day came out was that eight or nine years ago it was the first time I can't believe that. 
Um, you know, uh, and I'm talking about heterosexuals, you know, and when we think about queer representation in that way, it's, it's off the charts problematic. And yet the last couple of years, we've seen massive changes in that representation. They're wonderful. Um, but they can't just be lip service, you know. So the power of it is it saves lives. The power of it is not also not the extreme. It's not the extreme horror of us losing people, um, kids mostly in our communities. It's also this um, this idea that people don't believe that they belong and they find all sorts of ways to to not participate in their own life um, because of that or to change who they are, um, which doesn't usually end well. Um, so, so, the, so I think the power is in, is in that. And anti-colonial work has to be about calling that out. Um, and it has to be about also pointing out good stuff that's happening. You know, it's a, this positive charging of saying when you do have complex queer representation, call it out. And, and show it and say, look, see how easy this was to do, you know, or see how hard this was to do, but see how easy it is to consume um, and really recognising that. And, again, I think it's incredibly difficult for characters where, you know, they're in the middle of a war and you're not going to find out that they're they're queer because it's not part of the arc of, of a character. But there are flags and strategies, sometimes literal flags, um, and strategies to talk about queerness. And, you know, they're, they're available. And so, again, we hope that an audit reminds people of, of that availability, even if it's just cheating and sneaky. Who cares? You know, representation is representation as well, as we want it to be more complex. All right. So... Again, free for all kind of questions. So we talked a little bit about how the representation in media has definitely evolved over time. And so we're just curious, what what are your thoughts on the current like kind of landscape of what representation looks like now, like quantity and quality in like media today? Mm. Um, I Sorry, Han, go ahead. No, no, uh, I'll just kind of like throw a bit of where, like, I mean, part of it is um, the inability to, to watch everything and be able to give a comprehensive answer. And that's partly why we have um, the you amazing mean, like, assistance of a couple of Gen Zers, <laughs> <laughs> Alana and Taya, who are doing such great work. Um, yeah, not only not only watching a lot of the stuff that we don't always have time to watch, but also like really thinking about it and thinking with it and um, unpacking a lot of this complexity. Um, I guess we're really thinking about um, yeah, like the kind of the gains that are being made and the and the like the ways that they're you know are kind of representations that you know we wouldn't have seen before. And I think that's like particularly you know it's it's very intentionally evident in remakes of shows. And so like Heartbreak High here, Ooh. just because I know that's a, a show from this place that's, that is also available to, to watch in Turtle Island in the U S um, uh, and, you know, that's, that's a very different thing to the Heartbreak High that was on the small screen in the nineties that I watched growing up. Um, it's a very, um, you know, it's it's intentionally kind of sitting with identity complexities in ways that are that are meaningfully um, 
more aware of some of some of the the political positioning than than at that time but um and you know it's this yeah is, this but it's still like, got some of the problematic stuff about it too it's exactly and that's kind of the thing is that oh, sorry um, sorry Hannah. i was just no. gonna say it's yeah it's still doing that it's st- still doing that problematic stuff of you know the schoolyard is this kind of imagined unsafe place you know it like mm. that swap out for a prisoner or um wentworth yeah is really interesting (laughs) so yeah um, and that's the thing is that it's sort of like yeah yeah there's this kind of like claim to um or like really trying to make really um like articulated in many cases uh you know this is this identity and this is this identity and it's once again kind of a little bit contained a little bit siloed um so like and you're a representation of this and you're a representation of this and therefore we are diverse um and then when it reproduces some of these, like, um, yeah, some of these same kind of uh, tropes and and storylines that you know, you know, you have to question, like, is this is this like net good or is this like doing further harm um, just because you've like named this particular yeah, like kind everyone, of complex? Sorry, yeah, sorry everyone on Heartbreak High is skinny. Everyone on mm. Heartbreak High is skinny, you know, so that they've got this kind of notion of, I mean, I don't know if they've met other Aboriginal people that they haven't cast in that, but I'm telling you, <laughs> we're not skinny. <laughs> so, um, but also, you know, it's a, it's about broader representation in that way. Um, I think on Turtle Island, you know, A League of Their Own is a really good example of that, um, you know, and, <laughs> uh, um, and that's got, uh, I think we count down 13 kind of characters that have um, that, that are queer that have um, a real profile on the show. Um, and 13 is a lot. Like it's remarkable. Yeah. What happens when you have 13 is that you can have some baddies. You can have goodies. You can have people who are like morally ambiguous. You can do that stuff. You can't do that when you've got two or three. You know, mm. you, and we're really interested in that idea of how especially queer Indigenous characters um, are always coded as kind of the hero or not so much the villain. I mean, never the villain, actually, but always the hero or the, the sad character, you know, so so somebody who's suffered from colonisation. When that doesn't happen is when, like, we're only queer, like something like Rutherford Falls, for instance, um, or, you know, or, or, or Res Dogs, for instance, you know, like you see... Mm-hmm some mm. more complexity where you can have like the baddies and you can have the goodies and you can have the way that they interact with one another. But I'm also really interested, Hannah, I just totally um, took over what you're saying then. Was that okay? Oh, of course. Yeah. Uh, look, I was just going to say, I was just going to say about, you know, one, one of the things that we've had to be really careful of um, is this issue of queer actors um, mm. within this space, because there are a lot of, queer actors that are not talking about being queer and uh, in particular that's, you know, it's a concern for us because, you know, the sort of calling out, I mean, I can't believe I'm kind of saying this in 2022, but here we are, you know, in a space where for people to identify themselves as queer, particularly when they're playing smaller roles in smaller productions, can actually isolate, you know, their capacity. And so we've been really cautious about how we write about the idea of kind of excluding queerness. And I've had a really um, funny experience of having, um, can I tell the story? 
<laughs> this and you know what the story is, Hannah. Um, uh, look, I had um, I'd, I'd written something about four years ago now. About four years ago, I'd written about four characters that were queer, um, either queer characters or, or kind of queer coded characters in um, major TV shows. And I'd been writing some work around this, and I was writing it to talk about the complexity that was not really possible when we we're talking about white cis het characters. White cis het characters playing queer characters, there was much more of a swap out of permitting them. And so I, was, so I sort of focused on four of these characters. And one of my pivot points was to go, and none of them are queer. Like all of them are not queer. Um, and I'd just gone to writing this, this piece up and I was about to submit to the editor when one of them came out. Um, and, <laughs> oh. yeah. and then I then I left it alone for a while, um, kind of thought I don't have time to rewrite this, went overseas, was doing some research overseas, um, came back and I had this um, moment of going, oh, look, you know, I know this other place that I can submit to. So uh, Alternative, actually, it was the edition that Bron was putting together and so I thought I'll get it ready for that. I sent it and then immediately recalled it because the second actor came out. No! <laughs> Foiled again. Then, yeah. <laughs> um, sometime later... I was putting all of my work together and, you know, sometimes you have work that you've worked on for a while but didn't get submitted somewhere for whatever reason. Um, I've got a few pieces like that and I had this piece and I thought, well, this is ridiculous. I can work this around. I can talk about this in some way and I kind of found a way to do it. It's losing a bit of traction for me um, but I found a way to, to write about it and I was genuinely, <laughs> no word of a lie, due to submit again. And the third one came out. No. <laughs> yeah. So now I'm just too frightened because clearly that fourth one, the moment that I go to publish it. No, but I mean, this right. issue of, of queerness, it, it's interesting because I'm saying queerness, but obviously there is quite a difference between gender and sexuality. And I think when you look at something like Disclosure, um, the, a really wonderful film that talks about the issues of having someone who's cis playing somebody who's trans, and you know, and the and the deep problems with that are quite different to sexuality. You know, they're quite different to that space. I'm not sure there are a million. You know, I'm not sure that, that it's that it's an all or nothing about it. I think there is some complexity to it, but it, it is a real concern. And I guess at the moment, with a lot of the trans exclusionary stuff too, there is a real concern over kind of setting that up as a binary problem. Um, as well so so we're trying to know about it and talk about it a bit but also not necessarily play it out as a this is working in this way and this is working in this way and I think one of the things that happened in 2020 and I, I won't mention a name with this this actor that this happened with but <clears throat> it was really horrible so um so in 2020 there was uh, a, an actor who had played a queer character on TV who came out as queer, as queer, right? And uh, they'd played a lesbian um, on uh, TV, I guess. I don't know if they were a lesbian or bisexual. They'd played somebody who was who was uh, attracted to a woman. And, um, and there was absolute um, support 
there was on across social media this incredible support and interest and uh, actually it was one of the people also who uh, was the one who came out um, but you know there was there there was certainly a lot of interest and I read nothing but support oh, there might have been a few things that weren't but mostly it was then a year later they clarified that they were non-binary and the the stuff that happened was atrocious it was all negative um, they ceased their um, Twitter account they did all of this work to basically um, all these people were doing all this work to basically call them out on being a liar um, uh, about their gender you know and also just a whole lot of transphobic stuff about their body so they comment the comments on the body were remarkable um, and, you know, I think that it's entirely possible that because of the scope of that, this is somebody who may not work again. I, I think that's possible and I think it's appalling. Um, and I think it needs to be called out kind of what it is, which is not just queer phobia, but also this real problem of how we understand representation generally. Um, and, you know, that idea that queerness is only how we regard it as queer people you know so it's uh so it's it, it was a I, I guess so it's horrible to see any of these things as a um you know as as a, as a lesson because this is a person's life but um but it was a lesson in some of the issues around this that we needed to also have an awareness of you know um again sometimes people have been out at some stage um, but they're no longer out um, or, or talking about it. And so in that way, we've been very careful not to say that. And, of course, that brings up this whole issue of queer people playing queer characters um, and the, the power of it, I guess, um, is still for a lot of people undeniable because they feel it. You know, what people feel as, as viewers is this sense that there's a relationship to truth in playing a character, whether there is or not. And um, so, yeah, so so I guess they're the things that we're interested in. But, you know, our beginning point with the Indomaru and Ngana is to say we make a world worth living in so we don't do damage to individual people in that way ever, you know, for the sake of, you know, um, research. So, Sandy, we saw that you are part of the Center for Global Indigenous Futures. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit more about this organization and your role in, in it? Yeah. Um, so Center for Global Indigenous Futures is uh, is a, a group that comes out of a group called FIRE, which is the was the Forum for Indigenous Research Excellence. Um, and it was set up by Professor Bronwyn Carlson, who's the other professor at uh, the uni are uh, in um, in this continent uh, only about five percent of people who are academics are professors so it's not you know it's a bit of a different language so it tends to be very senior academics um, and so Bron uh, actually does a massive amount of work in the online space uh, writes around indigenous online engagement uh, sort of remarkable body of work in that field and she'd set this up um, and she'd actually set up FIRE as um, a vehicle for the first ever queer Indigenous uh, symposium that happened 
in 2015. So there'd never been one before that. And um, she brought people from all over the world simply because she had a student who um, was queer and Indigenous and she wanted to have an opportunity for them to meet other people. And so I, um, Bron already knew my work and so I, I got me to come down and be engaged in, in that way. But um, as a result, uh, about a year and a half ago, I started working at Macquarie, which actually hosts the Centre for Global uh, Indigenous Futures, and that has the online journal, it's freely accessible online journal that's called uh, Journal of Global Indigeneity. Uh, and we work with Indigenous people from around the world. So we've got a Sami uh, journal issue that's coming out shortly, uh, and uh, so it focuses on Sami community in uh the area that's now known as Norway and across that across that region. And we focus uh, a lot on our relationship with people in Turtle Island. Um, so we've got a lot of um, connections to people in, I guess, the modern-day Canada and the modern-day US. Uh, and the work that we've done is, is centred on uh, a few different areas, but essentially we we focus on the idea of um, of digital lives. Uh, we focus on uh, the locating ourselves, which is about where the queerness sits uh, within this, this space. And then we do work on the idea of, um, of our futures. And so the idea of futures isn't about going. It's not really the futurism stuff about going speculative fiction, let's make the world better and then we can go and live in that. It's it's about the future that starts today. You know, so it's about saying uh, uh, how do Indigenous people make this and how do we make it with our allies? So how do we make it with with settlers and others from around the world to, to make these spaces, spaces that, that people can grow in? Uh, and we use this uh, idea of survivance. So it's Visner's idea, um, who's an Anishinaabe scholar who talks about the idea that if we exist now, we've existed in the past and we always will exist. So um, so, so that when people say, oh, you know, there weren't queer people um, decades ago or centuries ago or thousands of years ago, it's like, well, we exist now, so actually we did exist. That's how it is. And so it's a lot of work that does challenges to that. And a lot of work I do kind of creates those challenges. So I do a little bit of work in the museum space that's around how people gender figures of the past. So, you know, people will gender, for instance, um, Venus of Willendorf is a really good example. Lots of people know Venus of Willendorf. Um, and, uh, you know, the Willendorf figurine is this is this figure that's often framed as a maternal figure, um, as a pregnant figure, actually. And uh, it's largely not thought of as, as pregnant anymore. It's now thought of as a perspective work. So it was made by somebody who was looking down at their own body. Um, they may or may not have been pregnant. That's kind of the rendering from um, the last couple of centuries of how people understand. And also I have a body that's a lot like Venus of Willendorf and I'm not a woman. So when the character gets framed or the figure gets framed as, as female or a woman, uh, there's a challenge to it. But there's also a kind of contemporary reading that's happening when that happens. So curators are going, yeah. 
you know, how I know the world is that there's the past just had women and men in it and I'm just going to go through and gender them, <laughs> you know. So, so it does this work that's not about kind of recognising the complexity. So what we do in the centre is that we do this kind of complex work that's around trying to make worlds better. So we work with... Um, a lot of large sites are obviously the Australian Research Council that provides some funding to be able to do work that wouldn't otherwise be funded. But we also work with organisations like Indigitech, um, like Parents of Gender Diverse Children, um, like the Victorian government that provided the funding for that, like um, uh, Facebook who have uh, or Meta who have done quite a lot of, uh, provided quite a lot of funding for us to, to look at some of the issues in terms of Indigenous people online. Um, you know, there's a, a lot of myths around that. You know, there was a, there were myths years ago that was like Indigenous people don't use um, uh, the internet or they don't use um, uh, social media. And, in fact, then there were surveys done that showed that the percentage at which we used it was about 20% higher than the rest of the population, which made all the sense in the world to us because part of what it was doing was recognising that um, was we were all recognising that we needed to find a way to connect with one another, um, you know, in a, a site where um, where there was the capacity to do that outside of work and form community. And so Bronwyn's written quite a lot about that. But we work with 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 Indigenous scholars from around the world. We work with um, Percy Lezard, who is a remarkable um, two-spirit scholar um, from uh, Canada, Skilks um, scholar, who does incredible work and actually did this report that challenged or added to, I guess, the um, murdered and missing women uh, in, in, um, committee that had set up uh, a, a real concern around how they were locating and um, and understanding what was happening for Indigenous women and girls and, and saying, look, this is happening for queer people too. Why would we be doing it? separately when we know that this is affecting queer people who may also be um, Indigenous women and girls. And so in, so it became uh, also two-spirit on, on top of that. We don't have terms, we don't have a single term in this country like two-spirit. I mean, two-spirit's a relatively recent term. It's only been around for 32 years, 33 years. But, um, but it's a, a, still a term that many um, First Nations people and Indigenous people in Turtle Island use. We don't have a a, a similar term um, that works across queerness, but um, we would say, you know, queer Indigenous people. And, you know, so there is this sort of complexity that's around representation, that's around um, uh, visibility in the case of social media, that's around um, uh, the work that we do on recognising the the horrors that can happen in our community and also the successes that can happen in our community. In this uh, continent, we've got this idea of closing the gap where, you know, our, um, uh, our health outcomes are substantially lower than um, the rest of the population. Our education levels are substantially lower. Uh, a lot of the markers that are used by the, you know, white stream government are... Um, recognise that we're substantially lower. But what happens is with the closing the gap, the idea is that we get up to here. It's never really about how we exceed the gap. It's never really about our successes. It's only about that idea of, of resetting disadvantage. And so part of what we do is to talk about both, to say, actually, we can talk about both. We can talk about how to make sure that people live longer lives. And we can talk about how 
we um, also thrive in the space that we're in because of our connectedness to one another. So I can't even remember what the question was. Did that answer any of it? It did? <laughs> yeah, you got it. Sorry about that, guys. Uh, my <laughs> cat. Today, there were a lot of people and other animals in my room, so she's feeling neglected. And... Poor baby. I've never seen her this active. Yeah, it's because she's feeling neglected. Because there's usually no one comes in here. But anyway, so if you see t fluffy tails in front of my <laughs> face, that's why. Okay. Okay. She also found her toy, which is a discarded piece of plastic. Thank yeah, she does. But she just toy. doesn't need it to be on camera. She plays fetch and it's adorable. She does play fetch, which I did not throw her toy, so she will not fetch right now. But <laughs> next question is for Hannah. Can you tell us about the Rogue Three? Oh, Rogue Three. Gosh, you guys have done your research. <laughs> um, Rogue Three is a, is an improv trio I have with two friends of mine, um, Brody, who plays trombone, and Ryan, who plays recorder. Um, and we haven't been able to really do too much since the pandemic kicked off because Ryan is based um, in, in Nam, in Melbourne, Victoria, um, and so, you know, we haven't had the chance to get together also because Ryan and his partner, um, have a very fresh child. Um, and so they, yeah, they, they're, um, busy doing that. But, um, Rogue 3 is just, I mean, it's, it's just a, a real kind of, uh, project of, of sounding, I guess our relationships and, and also our, like the long-term friendships that we have um, and also often in, in place, in spaces. So um, like we have one like studio recording, but we've also done recordings in um, a drain space in Annalee here, which is, um, you know, about a 15 minute bike ride from where I am right now um, that goes kind of underneath the motorway. And uh, yeah, so we, we, played there together. We also did a recording on, um, my parents still live um, where I mostly grew up, which is a uh, small farm, a bit under a hundred acres. I'm not sure if acres are the um, unit of measurement of like sort of um, land farm size in, in the US, but um, uh, they, it's on, okay, cool, cool. Um, on, yeah, on we're, the ones, we're the ones that don't use it. I know. Well, we're, no, we're the ones definitely that use it. We there. use hectares. Yeah, hectares, but it's, yeah. that's much bigger. So it's a lot harder to measure a small farm in hectares. <laughs> um, so, yeah, they it's on Guyabal and Jadawere country, so southwest of um, a regional city called Toowoomba. And uh, that's where that's where I mostly grew up before I moved to Mianjin. And it's, um, uh, yeah, it's, it's like got some olive trees on it it's got some cows it's got uh, there's still one horse kicking around we had a lot of horses when I was growing up so um I mean the climate in in that part it's a, it's about a two-hour drive from where I am now it's not particularly far away but um that's that's kind of going almost directly inland um and 
the last couple of years, it's been the um, La Nina. So there's been a lot of rain, um, but they came into that large amount of rain from a good nine years of quite extreme drought. And sort of towards the end of that drought time, um, Brody and Ryan and I did a recording out there. Um, yeah, really like the, there's just, there were just whole areas um, that didn't have any grass anymore. And um, that's, yeah, it's like semi-arid country. So it's usually sort of fairly dry grasslands with quite a lot of eucalypt forest. Um, and so, some of the eucalypts were were dying and this kind of thing. And so this is, this is what led into the really bad bushfire season of 2019, 2020 here. Um, and it's not an area that usually sees bushfires. And, and luckily they didn't have any go through that direct area. Um, but it was just so extremely dry um, and like barren in this like kind of haunting way. And so like standing on that country and it just looks so different to when I was growing up and, and now it looks so different again. And it was, um, yeah, we, we called it eucalypt apocalypse. We just were like really sitting with the, with the state of, of the land in that moment and, and you know, the history that's contained there. Um, I recently went up to Toowoomba um, a couple of weeks ago for a memorial service um, for um, actually in a way a kind of celebratory memorial service for the what was called the Battle of One Tree Hill or the Battle of Miwa, which is um, a mountain just near Toowoomba. Toowoomba's a mountain range. I mean, by mountain standards, look, I have a Canadian partner who will uh, tell me that these are not mountains. They're just kind of big hills. But, like, this is part of the Great Dividing Range. <laughs> 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 barely yeah, barely mountains. They, like, it's it's still called a mount, mountain. Anyway, um, large hill, but a very notable <laughs> one um, where there was a really significant battle against the invading settlers, the colonists. Um, and I'm going to forget the year because um, I'm not I'm not the greatest at, at my history buff, but there's a really great podcast I can recommend called Frontier War Stories um, with Bo Spearham, um, which goes into a lot more detail, detail mm. about this. Um, but yeah, so I went to this memorial service that is actually for the battle that was won by the local Indigenous people um, and uh, dro- driving people back all the way to Logan, which is about an hour and a half drive from from where that um, where that mountain is, and so like a significant day's hard riding kind of thing, or like, and so it was a really successful defeat of the settlers at that time. Of course, the crackdown that followed was extreme and um, led to the deaths of a lot of people. But so this was part of a this was the eighth year, I think, of this. Um, memorial service that was honoring Aboriginal warriors in in the frontier wars, which is still like part of a very unspoken truth from this area. And so um Well it is being yeah. spoken it's being spoken by us more and more. And yes, we have absolutely. been speaking about it for a long time. It's just that non-Indigenous people are finally recognizing it. It's I mean we had a lot of battles in the Rajari mm. as well. And you know what what happened is it's the winning battles and losing a war is the yeah. kind of broader landscape, except we didn't lose. It's still our country. And, mm. you know, there 
it's not the end war hasn't ended you know so no, it's so there's ongoing. still yeah. this notion of yeah the war is ongoing and yeah um, and this indigenous so, led truth telling that's that, really yeah. interesting yeah it's yeah. interesting hearing sorry, you talk about that Hannah that's... sorry yeah how can we not not that moment of the, uh, but the earlier moment where you're talking about the making. I didn't mm-hmm. realise that you'd done that work out there. I don't know why I didn't, but um, but it reminded me of you know um, uh, Sarah Jane Moore, who's Palawa, um, mm-hmm. who does this remarkable work, and we used to do sound work together about 30, 30 or so years ago, and um, and we actually went out to Dubbo, so on my country, so on Rajri country. And um, we recorded all of this where I was this work as well as music. (laughs) There you go. They're not connected. I'm hoping, Um, but it was (laughs) it was it was it was that same um, space of you know Australia's got a lot of droughts and a lot of floods and a lot of um, fires and you know a lot of these sort of natural disasters that aren't so natural. That, um, that that have happened and that are happening increasingly. But it was that moment of the kind of dryness of Dubbo that was happening 30, oh, it might have been 32 years ago, I think we went out mm-hmm. there. And, you know, and I was in my, my mid-20s at the time probably and it was, you know, this really lovely connection back to country because even when it's dry. And, you know, that reminds me of the broader issue of representation is that, you know, we often don't see these landscapes um played out that are unusual or you know um that in the same way as we don't see a diversity of queerness we're often not seeing a diversity of this kind of you know complex rendering i guess we see it a little bit sometimes in american shows that are shot here because they they come here and there's this funny thing that happened during the pandemic where there are a lot of movies and TV shows that they shot here for whatever reason, mm. people came over here and, and shot them. But um, because like 95% of our trees are gum trees or eucalypts, um, they'd have these, um, you'll see this on Netflix shows, that they have this kind of out of focus background. <laughs> so you can't see it's a eucalypt right. um, while they're driving yeah. past. It's hilarious. <laughs> The first time I visited LA, I was like, I had such a weird kind of experience because there's so many eucalypts, there's such a eucalypt forest, and I was like, it's like Brisbane with hummingbirds (laughs) and no footpaths. It's true. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's right. But I mean, I guess guess But but this is really interesting because it also, like, does... It's yeah, the the land, the representation of the land, but it does things to communities as well. It does things to how people behave. And when we don't see... I mean, we see these kind of like kind of romanticized representations of drought in like really particular kind of Australian television. Um, mm. But yeah, I don't think we see that kind of just like living with drought for a really long time and it not being like this, like, oh, this is the struggle that's going to destroy this family in the 19th century. Um, but like, yeah, but the the kind of reality of of. Yeah, the day-to-day life and how that Living how that it. kind of just subtly changes community yeah. and subtly changes the way that people live their day-to-day lives is is something and and similarly with the floods like it's it's not something that I think is explored in a lot of media representation and it's it's really interesting. Yeah. But, look, I don't think you see it much across Turtle Island either. You know, I think you mm. frequently I mean it's not just, you know, 
British Columbia is America. It's not just that. It's not just, you know, shooting in particular locations to kind of make um, make it affordable. It's it's more than that. It's also this idea of, of you know, places like the Midwest. I mean, I've, I did um, 75,000 road miles um, of driving when I was looking at 470 museums in the United States. So I spent a lot of time crisscrossing um, places in the US. And I, I think what I'm always surprised by when I'm in the US is how it doesn't feel like it's represented very well in, um, you know, in American-based shows. Uh, the people too, and that's a whole, you know, it's another conversation, but it's it's part of the same conversation about um, real representation as opposed to like the desperate, uh, almost like that comment that Susie Bright has in um, Certainly Load Closet, where they say, oh, you know, they're talking about how few lesbian films there were at the time. And, you know, and their comment is, um, I think there were about, I think, 12 kind of mainstream films at the time that Sonia Lloyd Closet comes out as a movie and it's reviewing, you know, all of these these films that have happened in the past. But they, you know, the, the comment is, you know, catching up with a friend and going, well, you know, I saw this amazing love story between these two women and it was beautiful and they were vampires. You know, so it's the it's the we'll take any representation we can get, please. yeah. And you know, and the the desperation means that we don't ask for more, and we don't mm. get more actually. <laughs> and 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 people think it's enough. Um, and who thinks it's enough is kind of what we're interested in with the queer as audit is understanding right. the power of who makes those decisions when it's this very large form work that that might have you know, queerness connected to it. You can have like a queer showrunner, but just because someone's queer doesn't necessarily mean that they understand the complexity of queerness. They understand their own queerness um, and they understand what they've encountered and who they've encountered. But understanding something like Indigenous queerness, people can shy away from it. They can become concerned that they're doing the wrong thing by representing in that way. And that's intriguing. And we know that what stops that is insider voices. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we gotta we gotta get them in there so mm. we can the the decision making positions. Yeah, and people are getting in there, um, but also it's hard when you've still got so few people. Things don't change quickly, even if we see much better representation than we did. It takes a long time for that representation to hit. You can have events around kind of the, the pushback against um, cis people playing trans people that happened a few years ago meant that you suddenly had a lot more trans people actually playing trans people. It did mean that, but it didn't necessarily mean that you had better representation. And, you know, there's some really good examples of where you have otherwise beautifully constructed ideas around race, for instance. I mean, we saw it with, um, with Lovecraft Country. You know, it's got this beautiful representation in Lovecraft Country of, of critical race work. And then it's got the most appalling inclusion of an Indigenous, a queer Indigenous person that is so damaging that um, it's terrible that they were included. It was terrible the way that they were included. They had a cis person playing the character and somebody swap out from one continent to another continent, weirdly, and, um, and the 
all of the other issues where the character was framed as as two spirit, the character was intersex, the character was um, was fr- you know, and there was no discussion around that. The and, the and then you know, spoilers, I guess, for this, they're killed immediately the moment that you meet them by another character as a kind of queer bashing, you know, and all of this in an otherwise gorgeous work that does this and like the complexity is still there it's still a gorgeous work but that's a really tricky um representation to have and I don't think any of that would have happened if they had somebody who understood queer indigenous people right you know they wouldn't have fucked up basically and I think the 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 showrunner said as much totally and and just like beyond like kind of I mean this this is like vitally important but beyond the kind of like accuracy of representation there's another layer of complexity that's about um in a way like who who is the intended audience and how that has to be presented and the and the kind of wrapping in which these things are presented and so kind of um you know I'm just thinking um uh, a bit of a, a scholar whose work um that we both know a, a friend of friend of Sandy's as well, um, Prof Chelsea Wadigo, a Mananjali and South Sea Islander scholar who who talks about the importance of writing, like black writing for black audiences, like Aboriginal writing for Aboriginal audiences, and not not catering constantly to this white gaze, to this settler like consumption of of these things. And I think this is similarly. Um, evident in like some attempts at at a complex um, queer identity and the way that's rendered in in television programs as this yeah what as we were sort of saying like siloing into these particular categories and like it's this particular um, layered identity and then and therefore this person is struggling with these particular issues in in the way that they kind of work through life and it, it can be quite reductive in a way that doesn't actually just like explore the complexities of a person's life and things. And I, I know like this is maybe harking back a little bit and forward, but I, this is just something I was reading this morning and it was just so beautiful. Um, some writing by Kai Minosh Pyle, who's a um, Michif and Nishinaabe um, writer um, and, and a queer Indigenous person who I've like learned so much from on Twitter and, and in their academic work and in their writing in general. Um, but uh, they introduced this kind they of concept of they just finished their PhD, which is extremely exciting, and I really look forward to reading it. Um, but they introduced this concept yeah. of instead of like mind body or body mind of land mind body um, as a single word, mm. um, and just talking in particular of of this kind of like the the complexity of an identity that like comes from this relationship not only with yourself and with the other humans in the space, but with the the land that you're on and, and, and like, particularly for Indigenous people, the way that that relationship has, like, this extremely deep and, like, integrated connection. And, like, when that's not having to cater to this audience that's assumed to have no knowledge of this, when instead it's just a kind of presumption, like, what possibilities are opened up there? And, like, you know instead of having to like hold someone's hand through it. I mean, look, I, I also come from, this is like a very different example, but I come from this um, more like experimental music kind of thing was sort of my, that's my jam. Um, and yeah, if you listen to any of Rogue 3, that's the kind of thing. And this this kind of idea of 
that was so often presented when I was studying within a European art music context was like this idea of holding an audience hand through more difficult music that's not what they would have been really familiar with because they don't know what to expect kind of thing. And the possibilities that are opened up when you drop that, when you actually just are the person that you are, you are the artist that you are, um, and that just, you know, you're representing the kind of life experience and and just starting from this place without having to like explain all of these details it just it suddenly opens up a different way of thinking representation and doing representation and I think that is only possible yeah when these people are when people from this lived experience are in the writer's room are in the production kind of um thing so that's yeah absolutely just thinking this land mind body concept um like it just kind of blows open what representation is and can do for me so yeah mm. I totally for a moment there thought you were saying landmine body <laughs> I was thinking a landmine um oh well, that could be bad <laughs> that's right though I think Kai might say that too <laughs> at some point you know Prof Wadigo um with Another Day in the Colony does a whole lot of kind of giving up on the idea that places are going to get this right. And I think when we see complex identity already, we expect a little bit more. I mean, that was what happened with Lovecraft Country, right? Like you go, come on, this is this is a team of people who understand where we're at in terms of race. So how are you getting your depiction of another race so wrong? And the answer is that people know what they know. You know, they have the experiences that they have and they're often grounded in that. And so part of it is about that participation in that way. And I think, you know, that idea that you just said, Hannah, about, you know, how do we um, how do we give people things that are unusual? I mean, we think that it's really shocking and that it's not um, that it's not it's difficult or you won't have an audience if you do something that's out out of the box. But we see again and again that that's not the case. You know, audiences Mm. actually want to have disruptions, you know, and we're very interested in the way that people spend time with characters too. Fan fiction's a really important measure of that. You know, people will spend so much time that they create texts that extend the characters' lives and extend the possibilities and they write... That's right. They're writing writing onto those characters in in a way that is that is really complex, and we see that's happened in indigenous futurisms. That I, you know, while we don't really want to imagine that our futures are just this kind of um, beautiful world that we've made and we don't know how to get there, you can still see why there are so many indigenous people that are interested in this notion of speculative fiction as a place to play where all of that doesn't have to be described to an audience, you know, where an audience doesn't need to have this anchored back to them in some way because you're making worlds. And I think we saw that with, I keep thinking about the fact, you know, my work is about no session. So I keep thinking about the fact that it's called a session. <laughs> the the um, And the obviously the challenge session. yeah. sessions are yeah. they're deeply problematic and I was really thrilled to see that... Um, it was made problematic at the end because I think it is an incredibly important moment to recognise that these sites that we get pushed back into as Indigenous people are frequently these problematic sites. And I know, I mean, I'm on Cubby Cubby Country right now, um, just north of Mianjin, which is um, settlers called Brisbane. And, you know, this space is 
you know, an incredibly powerful space and has been for a long time. The space that I come from, the Rajari, it's like, it's very big. It's the size of Portugal, you know, so it's a really large country uh, geographically, you know, uh, Australia landmass is about the same as the um, contiguous states in the in the US in terms of size. So it's very you know big with a very small population of twenty five million, but you know this these spaces are spaces that are really diverse. They they have complexity of people as well as uh, landscapes as well as um, ways that people have engaged in the past. And everything's not about the colony. You know, uh, we do things in spite of the colony. I don't wake up every morning and think this is what it's like to be a colonised person. Um, I hope. And, and of course, sometimes we do, you know, we've had some really horrific things that have happened just recently for us as a, as a community and it happens again and again. Um, but, you know, um, it's important reminder that um, we're not front and centre. Representation helps not just for us, but for the broader population. And I hate to say it because it's like, you know, they shouldn't have to know that we're human because we're represented in something that they care about but we're still there. We're still at that moment in time. Um, and we're in interim times. Things will change, but we still have to have representation. So that means it's hard to have negative representation, even though our arrival point will be having negative, like, baddies that are, you know, that are Indigenous characters and baddies that are queer Indigenous characters. I don't think I've ever seen a non-binary character who's a baddie. I'd love to be proven wrong. <laughs> but I don't think I can think of an animated one, but not, a, not another one. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> so, but uh, I mean, again, when I say I can't think of one, there, there will be some and they'll tell a story. And the audit is about understanding what their story is, not just me going, oh, I don't think there are any. You know, it is actually about locating them and working out what it means when we see them. Yeah, well, hopefully we get all, all the complexities, the good, the bad, the uh, problematic as we keep evolving in representation in media. So something to look forward to in the future. Uh, one last question for everybody before we wrap things up today. We're just curious. This, Sandy, this might be a bit. <laughs> this is a question for you. This may be a long shot, but we have to ask. Is there some kind of aboriginal language translation of our catchphrase hydrate for lesbian jesus <laughs> well we've got 350 languages so um, <laughs> well, the, answer is, the answer is no but also the I figured. Is, um I, I could work on it for Radri and tell you what it might okay. be Radri. um I, I yeah I'll, ha I'll have to come back to you but i think it's That's an fine. incredibly important question um, and uh, I'm not sure about where Jesus fits within it. Jesus might not be <laughs> translatable. Um, but in some ways I think, you know, Yindamara Winangana, this idea of making a world in which you get to be who you are might be hydrated for lesbian Jesus anyway. Okay, right? yeah, I'll take that. So that's even better. And sometimes that's what happens with language. You know, sometimes language isn't about translation, it's about translation of ideas as well. So. Exactly. Oh. Thank you for that. Yeah. Yes, thank you. <laughs> Welcome. This, was... is, this is the only podcast I can't watch. I mean, well, I mean, I was here, so um, that's the only downside I mean, of doing it. <laughs> we have to watch our own every single time anyway, so I think you can still watch it. <laughs> um, 
Is there any final words you have for our audience? Just that maybe don't I discount think, the, I think the like. Sorry, sorry. Like, uh, don't discount the like. No, no, you go. Hen. Intellectual engagement or the analysis that you do just on watching day-to-day things and like having conversations about it and um you know it's not like some like high up here academics are are doing this deep intellectual work of thinking with these these shows but like the I just feel like everyone's thinking with them and so we're trying to just kind of like um you know articulate uh a bit of a yeah I guess like the idea of doing an audit is kind of like thinking across a whole lot of different things, but we're drawing a lot on the, on the like thinking of anyone who's watching these, these shows and how that's kind of interacting with life. And, and I think everyone's doing that every time you, every time you sit down to binge watch, you're doing some intellectual labor. So <laughs> I just, I kind of wanted to. Okay. Like, I, think some, I think some people are doing it more than others. I think you guys are doing it more than others. Um, but I also, <laughs> Sorry, I don't care if that sounds elitist. I mean, I think no, what, it's... I think I think people are often looking at reproductions of the stuff that they know, you know. And mm. I think what's been remarkable about the work that you're doing is how much it disrupts that. And I suppose I'd say audiences want that. You know, years ago when I was doing the museums project, I was in um, I was in the UK and I was looking at the way that they represent their own First Nations peoples, and it was very, you know, it's a very fraught, problematic kind of site you know with a lot of people going oh we don't have any you know it's like you didn't just arrive so you did um but what what are you doing in terms of that you know how are you how are you representing this and you know there was this entire discussion around the importance of um of having that representation and seeing it as a kind of a through line to the past not just random characters that pop up in, out of history, you know, so not just the idea that um, that we arrived here fully formed as queer people, you know, we come from what we've been allowed to do, what we've been permitted to do, what we saw on TV, you know, what we saw on TV matters if you grow up with TV, you know, um, and it's it's got this incredible power, so we should demand more, and what we're seeing is as people demand more, they produce, do they produce very eloquently? Not always, but it, but it'll get there because there is criticism, there is kind of engagement. And so, uh, you know, viewer engagement, fan engagement if you like, but it's viewer engagement more broadly matters in, in this space. It really does. It's not just to keep shows going and to keep them, you know, in, there, but also to actually keep them relevant. Hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. That's a very good point. I think our listeners can resonate with that for sure. Absolutely. Well, thank you again for taking the time to talk with us today. Yeah, it was really amazing. Appreciate it. Yes, and love getting to talk to getting love getting to talk to you. I know you both better. Likewise, oh, likewise. And though it is a bit weird because I am, a, I'm a bit of a fan, so, um, <laughs> oh so it does feel like a bit of a strange. Situation. Just wait. I have questions for you that we that I, we can't ask here. So, yeah, just wait. I don't even know what these questions are. No, because either. I was thinking of them it. as I'm we scared. were speaking. Yeah, I was thinking of them, and it's like don't we always love to like tantalize our audience with things that we're going to ask off screen. Oh yeah, that they don't get to know. 
Yeah, I can but imagine. Anyway. I can imagine what some of them are. So. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, to everyone at home listening, make sure to check out the Center for Global Indigenous Futures. You can follow them on Twitter at IndigFutures. I at I N D I G F U T U R E S. Fiora made me spell it all out. I did. And if you're watching on YouTube, just everything will be in the description. Lovely. So thank, thank you. you so much. It Thanks was amazing. Again. Bye, everyone. And with that, we've been Big Gay Energy. If you like this episode, check out all of our other episodes on whatever you're using to listen right now. Uh, please subscribe and like all the things. If you happen to be listening on Apple, we'd really appreciate it if you could leave us a review, no matter how brief. This is what Apple uses in their algorithm to uh, help us gain a wider audience. So please, please, please help us out. Yes. And please feel free to reach out to us. We'd love to hear from you about everything and anything. And if we like it, we'll probably give you a shout out on the air. You can find us at all the things. Twitter at Big Gay Energy Pod, Tumblr, Big Gay Energy Pod, Instagram, Big Gay Energy Pod, or you can email us at biggayenergypod at gmail.com. Until next time, stay safe and hydrate for lesbian Jesus. <laughs> <laughs>